Welcome to another episode of the Chef Educator, the show that provides and discusses various teaching tools, tips, and techniques for the culinary, hospitality, and pastry arts educators. And now, coming to you through the airways from Palm Beach County, Florida, here's your host, Dr. Professor and Chef, Mr. Colin Rowe. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode one of the Chef Educator podcast. Today's episode is titled Designing a Course. And my name is Dr. Colin Roach, and I am your host. Now, before we start on today's topic, I want to give you a little background information on the podcast, including why I started it and who the intended audience is. Now, the Chef Educated Podcast was created as a comprehensive resource for new and seasoned culinary, hospitality, and pastry arts teachers, instructors, and faculty in both the secondary and post-secondary educational arenas. Now, the show will address the many issues related to student learning and instructor effectiveness, starting with this episode on designing a course. And then we're going to go all the way through like syllabus and lesson plan development, as well as other specific topics such as successful lectures, assignments, active learning techniques, student engagement, and motivation. The hope is to offer a collection of practical and effective teaching tools, tips, and techniques that can be used in the classroom or the lab. So, okay, with that said, let's jump right into today's topic on how to design a course or class. And whether you're designing a new course or updating one that already exists, it is important to remember that advanced preparation is very important. To me, Every hour of preparation invested before the start of my course saves me days of stressfully scrambling around throughout the semester. As a general rule of thumb, you want to give yourself at least six months to plan a new course. That's what I do. Now, although courses and classes may vary in size, subject matter, or even the level, having a systematic process will help you plan and structure your course so that you can effectively reach your desired instructional goals. And in this episode, I want to provide information that will help guide you during this initial design phase of your class or your course. So to start, effective course design begins with understanding who your students or your audience is, and then deciding what you want them to learn. This is followed by then determining how you will measure your students' learning and then lastly planning the activities, assignments, and the materials that you're going to use to help that support that student learning. So therefore, we need to plan ahead by asking ourselves, one, who are the students? Two, what do we want the students to be able to do? And three, how will we measure students' abilities? And by asking these three questions at the onset of our course design process, we are able to focus more concretely on our learning outcomes, which has proven to increase student learning substantially as opposed to just merely cramming large quantities of content into the class meetings. So now let's talk about what these three questions mean in a little bit more depth. So when we ask, who are the students? Before the class begins, try and find out as much as you can about the students. Consider the level of your course and the type and level of students that typically enroll in that course. You know, what are the students' motivation for taking the course? Uh, What might you expect students to know before the first class? What prerequisites or what knowledge are they going to bring with them? 
And consider the student's backgrounds. Is the course content part of the student's major or is the class an elective? That's, that's going to make a big difference, right? And what range of backgrounds and previous experiences typically represented among the students that you know, come to that class? The success of your course and of each lesson for that matter has much to do with how well you manage to match your course content to the backgrounds of your students. Now the second question, what do we want students to be able to do? Well, once you've considered who the students in the course are, ask yourself what they should be able to do at the end of the course. Try to answer this question as specifically as you can by using you know, terms that emphasize students' abilities and they can be measurable and easily recognized. For example, it's much harder and more challenging to measure students' abilities based on what they may know or understand as opposed to uh, measuring their abilities to perform tasks such as identify, differentiate, apply, produce. And we're going to learn all about these action verbs shortly. So I'll be talking about these, how you can make measurable course goals using action verbs. But determining the goals for the course will clarify what you want the students to learn and accomplish. And having these goals in mind and written down will then help you make decisions about which content to include, which teaching materials to use, and what kind of assignments and exams and tests and quizzes or practicals are appropriate. Now the third question was, how will you measure students' abilities? Well, designing a course around activities that are more likely to lead students towards the goals you've defined, defined earlier will help the student acquire and retain skills longer. So some goals can be achieved through, you know, listening to a lecture or reading the assigned text or the reading assignments you give them. Others may require more active experimentation, you know, more practice, maybe discussions. But no matter what combination of activities you choose, always keep in mind how the core activity, as opposed to the subject content, will help your students' abilities progress. What will provide you with reliable evidence during the course, as well as at the end of the course, that your students are learning and that they have obtained or mastered the abilities you've been kind of envisioned at the beginning of the course? You know, what, what is the evidence? This is the part where you choose assignments, activities, and other methods of assessment. For example, are you going to have quizzes, tests, research papers, um, presentations, maybe performances, practical exams, definitely, right, in culinary, in the labs, uh, maybe group assignments, group projects, individual projects. Maybe you're going to use all of these or a combination. Remember, assessment is an important aspect of student learning. Make sure to think carefully when pairing your assessment with the learning objectives. And in a future podcast, I'm going to be talking specifically on the various types of assessments and evaluations. I'm also going to talk about grades and uh, the positives and negatives on that. So keep, keep uh, you know, tuned in for that. Okay, so now let's get into the process, into the process. Understanding by Design is an Excellent, excellent book. It's written by Grant Wiggins and Jay Matigue. I think it's, that's how he pronounces it. It was in the late 1990s, 98, I think it was. And it offers a really powerful framework for how to design a course. And that's uh, what they call backward design, backward design. 
and it's called backward in that it starts from the opposite end of the planning process that we typically go through when we design a course, which is, you know, usually we start by thinking about how we're going to teach our content, but no, 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 this one's backwards. Start at the end, which is what the student's going to learn and the objective, the goals, and then we work backwards. And that's why it's so efficient and effective. Backwards design, again, in contrast to how we normally do it, leaves teaching activities until the end and starts with the desired results of that teaching first. In other words, Wiggins and McTeeb argue that you can't start planning how you're going to teach until you know exactly what you want the students to learn. Makes sense, huh? I mean, teaching is a means to an end. And therefore, having a clear goal at the start would only help us as educators to focus our planning and to guide our actions towards those intended results. And it is for this, these reasons that I highly recommend that you use the backward design model when designing or redesigning your course. And whether that course is a lecture, a discussion, a lab, this is uh, exclusively what I use when I design my courses. I use the backwards design process. And in this process, we structure student learning based upon assessments that are intentionally designed to provide evidence that students have achieved the course goals. So this first step in this backward course design is to clearly articulate the final results of the course. We begin by asking ourselves, one, what do I want my students to be able to think and do by the end of the course? And two, how will my students be different at the end of the course? And these answers, or the answers to these questions, are our course goals. Now, the backward design process has three basic phases, we'll call them to them, with the first being, as I just mentioned, identifying the desired results. In other words, we need to establish the learning goals for the course, which is what the students will know or understand or be able to do. And then, how do we prioritize and narrow down the content that we're going to teach so that it fits within the limited framework of the course. When we ask ourselves what our students should learn in our course or what they should be able to do by the time it ends, our answers to those questions reflect our learning objectives for the course. One of the classes I teach is cost control. So an example for that course might be um, Using ratio analysis, students should be able to interpret information on income statements and determine a food service operations profitability and establish related benchmarks. See, that kind of be like my objective. So in the second phase of backward design, you think about how you will decide if students are starting to master the knowledge and skills that you want them to get or gain. What will you accept as evidence that your students are making progress towards the learning goals of the course. How will you know if they are getting it? Well, when planning how you will collect this evidence, consider a wide range of assessment methods. For example, we know them all, essays, term papers, short answer quizzes, um, homework assignments, lab projects, giving problems to solve, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, in order to ensure that you test for exactly the learning you want them to gain, you got to think about what is the what is the evidence that we're going to be collecting. In other words, sometimes our assessments do not match our learning goals, and we therefore cannot attain the evidence we want. They're not in alignment. 
our assignments, tests, evaluations, practicals, etc., should tie back always to the learning goals or the course objectives. For example, um, if one of my goals is for students to learn how to problem solve, we'll say, then I need to give them an assessment that requires a demonstration of their problem solving skills, right? If your goal is to have them, you know, saute or do knife cuts or, you know, plate a dish or serve a table, I mean, these are all our objectives, then obviously they need to demonstrate that they know that. One way I could do this would be to have them, you know, if it was problem solving, write out the steps they took in addressing the problem and an explanation of why they took those steps instead of just asking them to simply provide the right answer to the problem. You know, why did they do it that way? Now, in order for students to demonstrate whether they have accomplished the objectives we have set, the paper they write or the exam they take has to evaluate that objective specifically. Both the form and the content of the assessment can facilitate or hinder that evaluation. So as already mentioned, evaluations must go hand in hand with course goals. Uh, so when you do this, when you're creating these courses, do your assignments reflect and help achieve course goals? And finally, after you've decided what results you want and how you will know when the students have achieved them, then and only then do you start planning how you are going to teach. Now is when we move to designing the instructional strategies and the students' learning activities. Now is when you need to think about and ask yourself, what are the best exercises, activities, problems, or questions for developing your students' ability to meet your learning goals? So once we have designed the assessment, our final task, which brings us around to the front of backwards design, is to plan our teaching. So lecturing, uh, primary, secondary readings, culinary demonstrations, student presentations, debates, all of these are possible ways of structuring student learning towards that eventual assessment. And because we're designing our assessment based on worthwhile objectives, it now becomes appropriate to teach to the test. After all, we want students to meet or exceed the challenge we set for them, especially when their accomplishment is proof that they have learned exactly what we intended them to learn. You see, this is easy. It makes sense, right? It's a great way to design a course. And then once we've determined these course goals and the content, and we, we've, we can now think about how we're going to present it. You know, um, it's selecting and developing our teaching methods, right? And tools and making sure that they're appropriate for the size of the class and they're consistent with these course goals. So we want to think about or some things that would come into play here would be what's our teaching style? How are we going to apply or adapt our style to suit the course goals and the size of the class and the type of students that are most likely to enroll and what type of teaching methods will best fulfill our course goals? And you know, whenever possible, of course, we're going to use a variety of approaches, taking into account that students, you know, they have a diverse range of learning preferences, right? Different students in there, bringing different experiences, different backgrounds. So we're going to definitely plan to use teaching methods that require and measure active student learning. So that is backwards design. Rather than starting with the content or the means, the lecture textbooks, problems, exams, backward design begins at the end by asking what should students learn in this course and what should they know or be able to do by the end? So now I want to take a quick pause here to recognize our sponsor, the Colony Hotel, with locations in Kennebunkport, Maine and Delray Beach, Florida. 
With their generous support, this podcast is able to be produced and shared with all of you. So please consider their gorgeous resort properties for your next vacation. To find out more information, check out their website at www.thecolonyhotel.com. Again, that's www, all one word, thecolony, C-O-L-O-N-Y, hotel.com. Okay, now I want to talk about Bloom's Taxonomy, something many teachers uh, refer to as a guide for writing course goals, and it helps us do specific and measurable language. It's a classification of different objectives and skills that educators kind of set for their students, you know, their learning objectives. And this taxonomy is based upon cognitive learning processes that move from kind of lesser to greater levels of complexity or abstraction. So you probably heard about it, I'm sure, it's by Benjamin Bloom back in the mid-50s. He was an educational psychologist at the uh, University of Chicago. And this terminology has been updated a few different times. And basically, there's six levels to it. Uh, first one is remembering, right, which is kind of retrieving and recalling information. Then it goes to understanding, which is when you construct meaning, um, you know, interpreting, classifying, summarizing. And then the third level is applying, which is carrying out a using a procedure, you know, by implementation or executing. Then we go to analysis or analyzing, which is breaking the material into its parts and determining how these parts all relate together. Then we get up to the top, which is evaluating or making some kind of judgment based on some kind of standards or criteria. And lastly, would be creating which is putting together new elements, new ways of looking at new patterns and coming up with maybe new knowledge. But like all taxonomies, Bloom's is hierarchical, meaning that it, uh, the learning at the highest level is dependent on having obtained prerequisite knowledge and skills at the lower levels. And you'll see it's often depicted or, or shown or displayed as a pyramid. And it helps demonstrate the hierarchy with you know, the foundational levels at the bottom of remembering and understanding and going all the way up to the peak. How, uh, how can this aid in course design? Well, it's a, it's a pretty powerful tool. It helps develop learning objectives because it explains the process of learning. For example, before you can understand a concept, you must remember it. And to apply a concept, you must first understand it. And to, in order to evaluate a process, you must have analyzed it. And lastly, to create a accurate conclusion, you must have completed a thorough evaluation. So you can see how they kind of build. So let's, let's, let's put it to something we can relate like the, um, I've seen it explained as a hotel check-in procedure, you know, checking in guests to a hotel and we can put this to the six levels. So for knowledge, which rem- uh, uh, know that is remembering or memorization, that would be identify the hotel check-in procedure. If we go to the next level, comprehension, which is the understanding, explain the hotel check-in procedure. For application or applying, we would say demonstrate the hotel check-in procedure. For analysis, we would say break down the hotel check-in procedure into sequential steps. For evaluate, which is judgment, we would say critique the hotel check-in procedure. And the last one, creating or synthesizing, we would say design the hotel check-in procedure. Now, with that said, we don't always start at the lower order skills and step all the way through the entire taxonomy for each concept 
you know, you present in your course. That approach would be tedious for both you and your students. Instead, we start by considering the level of the learners in our course. You know, are there lots of students that are freshmen? Is this an introduction to course? If so, then many of your learning objectives would most likely target the lower order of Bloom skills because the students are building that foundational knowledge. However, even in this situation, you're going to try to strive to move a few of our objectives into the applying and analyzing levels. You know, but don't go too fast because then it's just going to create frustration you know, and unachievable goals for the students because they're not there yet. They don't have that foundational knowledge. On the other hand, are more of your students like juniors, seniors, upperclassmen. Maybe you got graduate students in a, in a university level. So they may already have a solid foundation in much of the, you know, the terminology and the processes you'll be working with in the course. If so, then you shouldn't have too many remembering and understanding level objectives. They've already been there. You know, they already have that foundational knowledge. You may need a few, maybe to recall new concepts specific to your course. However, these advanced students should be able to master higher order learning objectives. Because if you have too many of these lower objectives, they're going to be bored. You know, they're going to be like, I already know all this stuff. Why am I in this class? Now, the hierarchical or triangular pyramid view of Bloom's has come under question you know, in past years. And many now suggest thinking of the levels uh, as more of cogs that all work together, that they don't have to go through each one, that they all share in some part, and we kind of go back and forth with them. Now, objectives, though, should contain clearly stated verbs that describe a you know, definite action or behavior, and in most cases should refer to an object of action. Therefore, our course learning objectives should be measurable or observable. Stay away from verbs that can't be quantified such as to know, to understand, to grasp, to appreciate, to enjoy, uh, to value, to like, to love, all of those ones. You know, these are ones you want to avoid. Not really, can, can't really measure those. Examples of verbs that you do want to use, these action verbs, things like uh, identify, select, analyze, align, predict, uh, isolate, divide, locate, list, compute. You know, you can get, go on the internet and get tons of these ones. So I'm going to give you an example now of some poorly written objectives versus how we might make them better for kind of our discipline. So instead of understand the main ingredients found in both in white and brown stocks, it would be better written as describe the main ingredients found in both white and brown stocks. Or know about the social and economic position of chefs prior to the French Revolution be better to say, analyze the social and economic positions of chefs prior to the French Revolution. Or be familiarized with the primal cuts of meat from beef, pork, and lamb. Well, that's not very good. Be better to say, distinguish could be used between the primal cuts of meat from beef, pork, and lamb. Or grasp the significance of the proper tempering of chocolate. Well, that's no good. Grasp? How do you, how do you measure grasping? But you could say, explain the significance of the proper tempering of chocolate. So the steps to writing effective learning objectives, one, make sure there is only one measurable or observable verb in each objective. Only one in there. Either a student can master the discipline or they fail to master it. If an objective has two verbs, 
saying there you have define and apply. Well, what happens if the student can define, but they can't apply? How do you, how do you, how do you measure that? Are they demonstrating mastery? You really only want to have one possible meaning. And ensure that the verbs in the course level objectives are at least at the highest Bloom's taxonomy as the highest lesson level objectives that support it. Because we can't verify they can evaluate if our lessons only taught them and assessed them to define. You know, so make sure they're, they're tied in together. And strive to keep all your learning objectives measurable and clear and concise. You don't want them too general. You don't want them too specific. So here is some possible example of course learning goals in a restaurant management course. Define food, beverage, and operational costs. Um, evaluate profitability of a food service operation. Design a service function using management theory. Create a marketing plan with measurable results. And maybe for a food and beverage type course, here is something you might find. Demonstrate application of food safety principles in the food production environment. Uh, produce a quality product in quantity. Prepare slash present food in a professional manner. See? So when teachers have clearly defined instructional objectives and have shared them with their students, better instruction occurs, more efficient learning happens, along with better evaluations, right? Because it's not you know, arbitrary. It's not subjective. It's just defined. This is what the goal is, and this is how you can measure it. So therefore, to summarize the criteria for useful instructional objectives, they need to be student-oriented, right? Instructional objectives um, place the emphasis on what the student is expected to do, not what the teacher will do. They need to be to descriptive and appropriate learning outcome, right? And clear and understandable. And lastly, observable, right? An observable action or an action that results in an observable product. Okay, and so once you get these major parts in designing a course completed, you can go on to completing the operational details of your course, such as refining and paring down your initial list of topics. As instructors, I'm guilty of this too, we often plan initially to teach more material than we can cover in the allocated or the allotted time. Now we got to pare it down. What's going to work? And we can also determine the structure of the course and kind of arranging the topics in a logical order. You, know, you can choose to organize it in a variety of ways, chronological, topical, conceptual, survey-oriented, process-oriented. You know, think about how the structure of the course will contribute to student learning and ask questions. Can I organize the topics according to a theme or a storyline? And do you need to teach certain skills initially and then discuss their application? You know, for example, in a culinary lab class, you'd want to teach the topics of like knife skills and cooking methods before topics such as, you know, garmage or international cuisine. And if you're going to use a textbook, you need to decide whether the course goals are best met by using a published one, which has some cost, or a course reader, maybe, that compiles material published elsewhere and, you know, take into account, again, the cost. Open educational resources, OERs, are all great to use as they're often high quality and free. But if you're going to use a tech, traditional textbooks, you've got to make sure you order the text early, you know, communicate it with the bookstore if you have one before the course starts, make sure the texts are available for them. Now they have electronic books. And if you're going to do a course reader, you've got to consider copyright issues. So check with your school's policy guidelines on copyright and fair use. Maybe you need to get permission if you plan to use instructional technology or maybe some multimedia and need certain equipment, you got to ensure that you have that equipment. It's available for you, the software, that you're trained on it. 
Uh, maybe you need to reserve a specific classroom that has that necessary equipment in it in advance. So think of that. You need to define your course policies. Not only how you're going to grade the work, you know, but also are you going to grade like class participation? Um, how are you going to deal with tardiness and attendance issues and work that's turned in late? And um, what's your school policies and like for plagiarism and for cheating and all the course policies on the syllabus that you plan to review with the students on the first day. And you're also going to develop a course schedule, right? Now, the tendency is nearly always to try to accomplish too much during each class period. I do this all the time. You need to allow time for active learning to occur during the class and for students to complete major assignments. Maybe you're going to give them some in-class group time. You've got to put in time to take exams and tests. And here's a little tip. When you prepare the schedule, I like to always check with the school's calendar as well. You know, keep in mind that any major religious holidays in there, campus events, homecoming, proms, those things that are in there because, you know, I try not to do tests around that time because I know the students are going to be busy with social activities and stuff. So sometimes you can do that as well. And then you're going to write the course syllabus. At a minimum, it should contain the course title, the time, location, you know, texts, course topics. You know, other things that are in there, policies you're going to put in there. And then again, in a future podcast, I'll discuss the syllabus and its construction in much more depth. And then you want to refine the course design. You know, course planning is a continual process. Each of the steps is undertaken with the others in mind, and each would necessarily will necessarily need to undergo revision each time you teach a particular course. You know, the first time, it's just a concept. Now you think this is how it's going to go. You have your lesson plans. You get out there and you do it. And you make notes. You go, that didn't work. Oh, my God. Oh, that worked great. Oh, add more time for this. Oh, it doesn't need this much time. And you make these revisions. The next time you teach it, you follow that new plan. And you constantly revise it, revise it, bringing in fresh material, right? So as you plan and revise courses, remember the importance of teaching those core concepts and critical thinking skills. Focus only on content will quickly lead you to overemphasize those knowledge-based skills and to ignore the teaching of that higher-level thinking of Bloom's. And so there's other things that come into the planning now, but you have the course design done. And that's easy, and I hope you follow this and try this. Maybe you're already doing that, and that's great. You know, you could add in the comments, send us some you know, emails, let us know how it's working out for you. So with that said, that's all the time we have for this episode of The Chef Educator. I want to thank you all for listening. As always, just mention, if you have comments, suggestions, or ideas, we'd love to hear them. You can contact me through email, which is drprofessorchef at gmail.com. Again, that's drprofessorchef, D-R-professorchef, all one word, at gmail.com. Or by phone, if you prefer, where you can leave me a message. The number is area code 207-835-1275. That number again, 207-835-1275. Okay, until we meet again, keep learning, keep teaching, and keep cooking. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye now.